Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Please welcome Dr. Lindsay Burke, Director of Heritage's Center for Education Policy and Mark A. Colocatronis Fellow, and General Tom Spohr, Director of Heritage's Center for National Defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you everyone for being with us this afternoon. We're excited to be part of Heritage's second Policy Pulse conversation to talk about two really important ways in which this Biden administration FY 2022 budget misses the mark. I'm Lindsay Burke. I'm the director of the Center for Education Policy here at Heritage and am delighted to be joined by General Tom Spohr. Yeah, thank you very much, Lindsay. I'm Tom Spohr. I'm the director of the Center for National Defense. And the genesis of this uh, event today was both Lindsay and Mai's, my uh, kind of disbelief about the preview of the Biden budget that came out in April that talked about uh, how much funding. We don't have much details, but we have a few details on where President Biden, in his first budget, uh, proposes to spend the money. And I, as the defense person, was looking very carefully and was disappointed by an insufficient uh, level of funding that they proposed for defense, while Lindsay, on the other hand, was astounded uh, by the amount of money that the administration proposes to, um, to put into education. And so that's the genesis. We're going to get right to it. A different kind of format. We're going to go quickly. Uh, there's not an opportunity for questions, but we hope we hit all the various topics. And so, Lindsay, I just wanted to ask you, what what is this administration? What have they proposed for education? And what are they proposing now for the 2022 yeah. budget? Well, they have proposed a lot of ineffective, inappropriate federal education spending that would actually be appropriately spent on national defense. And I'm happy to send the budget over to, to the that. Department of Defense. Uh, but look, I mean, the numbers are astounding. I have to write them down because they're so breathtaking. It's almost hard to believe. But the budget request for FY 2022 includes $102 billion for the Department of Education. That's a 41% increase crazy. over last year's numbers. I mean, it's yeah. just an astonishing amount of money, an astonishing increase. That includes $20 billion in additional funding for the Title I program. It includes $3 billion in new spending for the federal Pell Grant program for higher ed, a $1.2 billion increase in unfortunately, the failing Head Start program. So there's a lot of, I would say, um, um, expenditures that are proposed in this budget uh, that are only going to perpetuate a really failed model of continually increasing spending and program count at the federal level. We now have half a century of evidence that centrally planned education uh, that is backed by a whole lot of taxpayer money has failed to improve outcomes for children across the board and has particularly failed to improve outcomes for uh, disadvantaged children and to narrow those achievement gaps. So we really need to rethink how we deliver funding uh, that we do spend at the federal level, but this budget really goes in, in the wrong direction in education spending. And you know, I would add to that, it comes after an unprecedented amount of spending over the past 12 months as part of these three COVID relief packages. Uh, those three packages provided $282 billion in education spending. 
that is just orders of magnitude beyond the department's current current annual discretionary budget. If you look at, and by the way, that, that money, that $282 billion, uh, there is still a lot of money that is unspent. Schools are sitting on mounds of cash, about $180 billion is unspent, and yet we see this budget <laughs> suggesting that taxpayers finance much, much more at the federal level when schools can't even spend what they currently have. Um, and then the last thing I would say on that is that's not the end of it. <laughs> if you look at the American Families Plan, which I think is effectively acting as a parallel budget right now, this American Families Plan, this so-called social infrastructure, everything's infrastructure now, that the Biden administration has put forward that would include, if enacted, $748 billion in education spending. I mean, that's why I say I have to write it down. It's so breathtaking, the amount of money. Uh, not like anything we have ever seen before. And it's not just the money that's a problem. It's what all of that spending and decision-making from Washington signifies, which is growth in federal involvement and moving decision-making away from the local level and the parents and the students that those decisions affect to policymakers sitting here in Washington. Yeah. So how bad's your budget? That's <laughs> <laughs> funny you mentioned. I mean, I have a, a family member who went to a conference last weekend and he was sitting next to a school administrator and the administrator confided to him that they don't even know how to spend this amount of money, right. that they don't even have, they couldn't even construct a budget that would yeah. spend all this money, you know, for the next several years. So, I, you know, right. what you're saying kind of rings true. But I guess, you know, given that uh, education is one of the, the few enumerated functions of the Constitution, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, be a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. That's there's, your issue. Yeah, there's nothing about education in the Constitution that. But uh, yeah, uh, defense a, a completely different story. And so, whereas education sounds like they are poised to be uh, swimming in a in a huge pool of money, uh, the, the Defense Department is, is is frankly starved. Their budgets have been flatlined for the last uh, couple of years. And what President Biden has proposed for 2022 is worse. It doesn't even keep up with inflation. And so it's going to sound like a big number, but the Defense Department uh, was funded this year, 2021, at $705 billion. And uh, Biden administration proposed $715 billion for the next year. And that sounds like an increase, but it's not because inflation gobbles up everything. And so if the budget had just kept up with inflation, it would have been $722 a billion dollars, but it doesn't. It's seven or so billion dollars short of that. And you can say, well, you know, DOD, they can just tighten their belts, they can get by, there shouldn't be a big problem, but it isn't. I mean, just like inflation hits your household budgets, inflation hits uh, the Pentagon even harder because the Pentagon, whether they want them or not, they get pay raises based on the cost of inflation, their fuel costs go up, and we all know if we've been reading the newspaper lately, inflation is even greater. Uh, than we had thought it was going to be. You know, we were thinking it was going to be 2%. I think it's probably going to be bigger than that by the time we get to 2022. And so this, this Biden defense budget, which has been proposed, is going to be a lot of pain for the Pentagon. And it isn't, it's stuff like where they're going to have to cut back on training, they're going to have to cancel equipment programs, they're going to have to buy less things than they had, had thought to, uh, they were going to be able to buy uh, family housing may not get the upgrades that they were hoping. And so there's a lot of implications of this. And I got to be honest with you, Lindsay, what um, is troubling to me is in the budget preview, you know, the administration almost seemed giddy about all the things they were going to do about 
you know, education and the climate and labor policies and all these other things. And they went on and described them in huge detail. And then when you got to the section on defense, it was very short and terse. It was almost like somebody had been, you know, forced to write this section and they didn't even really want to. You know, I, I tell people it looks like the work of a reluctant uh, school child having to write the defense section. And, you know, and, and so the two federal departments that came in for the small, smallest amounts of growth in the Biden budget were the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense, coming in at about 1.5 for DOD growth and less for Department of Homeland Security. And all the other federal departments got like a 16% uh, average growth in their budget requests. And for me, it almost feels like um, defunding the police at the federal level. And so we are proposing to kind of reduce the funding for those institutions in America that keep us safe, Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense. And that's, that's troubling to me. Uh, we'll talk more about that. And, and conversely, proposing to increase significantly the funding for institutions that many have been closed over the past few months, yeah. right? I mean, parents are still struggling mightily with school closures across the country, with school districts, uh, some either remaining closed or still at this point being in hybrid mode. Uh, even for some of those that are open, doing this sort of Zoom in a room, right. you know, hybrid model. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of parents, despite all the progress that has been made, still have this nagging question about what school will look like this fall. Yeah. And so this is just all of these, the, the spending packages over the past 12 months. The, I left out the Infrastructure One proposal as well. That was another $260 billion that they proposed for education. The American Families Plan, the FY2022 budget, all of this is just a... I think a gift to special interest groups that have really been the source of school closures over the past 12 months. So it just it adds to the list of reasons why this budget is um, offensive. Yeah, you know Eisenhower warned Americans about the danger of the military-industrial complex, and I wonder if we'll see the rise of the educational-industrial complex yeah. as a result of all this money. Well, believe you know. it or not, you're not actually the first person to, yeah. to use that phrase uh, right. within education. It is, that's certainly the case. And, you know, speaking of Eisenhower, it's always interesting to me that if you follow the history of education, that a lot of uh, the policies that are still with us today go back to, to Eisenhower, and not to, to lay blame on him, I'd I say, you know, with Sputnik, right? I mean, right. the Soviets launched the Sputnik satellite on October 4th, 1957, and that, that catalyzed uh, this effort to provide some support at the federal level for mathematicians and scientists, right? Eisenhower said we've got to best the communists on their own terms, and, and that was fair, right? There was a federal defense imperative in that that idea right um, that didn't last long because then we see Lyndon Johnson come in and instead of you know working through a national defense lens and right. spending education that way all of a sudden we see this domestic war on poverty that being the justification uh, although again not an enumerated power of the federal government for massive federal spending not not anywhere near <laughs> what we're seeing proposed actually today by the Biden administration, but it laid the groundwork for everything from preschool through higher education today. And, and that's still with us and, and hasn't worked to improve outcomes over the years. So it's always interesting to me, particularly within a, a defense education conversation that we both kind of got to Eisenhower, right? So it's, yeah. there's always that national defense justification for federal involvement in education, or at least there used to be. Now we've right. sort of thrown that aside. Nobody even tries to make 
the national defense yeah. justification anymore. I mean, uh, an exa another example of that is the uh, school lunch program, you know, which were they found in the, at the start of the Korean and the World War II, they, they, a lot of the people bringing in were malnutrition, so they sought to, to fix that problem. And now, you know, there's attempts to make all school lunches right. free, no matter uh, of your means, you know. And, which, and by the way, is yeah. extended even further in the American Families Plan yeah. that the Biden administration put forward. They would expand free meals once again, even far, uh, further than it, it currently stands to include families who, who are non-poor. Yeah. So it continues. Yeah. So let's talk about money and education, because you and I have spoken in the past, and it seems to me, I remember you saying that uh, additional money to a school isn't always correlated to better outcomes. Yeah, that's right. There, there's very little, if any, correlation between spending and academic achievement. And, you know, if you look at the long view of the history of American education, right, if you look in the late 19th century, early 20th century, it made sense to make some of these investments in education. And we did see productivity returns as a result of those investments. But particularly by the time that we get to 1965, we get to the war on poverty, we get to the decades that followed and these massive increases in spending, that's where we see that point of diminishing returns on those dollars spent. And you know, if you just look across the country and you can control for the price of living in various states across the country, you can see it's quite clear that that correlation does not exist between ever increasing spending and academic achievement. What we know matters though, it's not the amount, it's who controls that spending, mm -hmm. who's making the decisions around how those dollars are allocated. And again, this gets back to the budget because as we see spending increase, that means a greater increase in control in Washington over that decision-making process. And so, hence why I am uh, not remotely optimistic that if this were to, to come to fruition, that we would see long-term improvements. Yeah, as you suggest, probably all these dollars will be accompanied by rules right. and so if you want to spend these dollars you know you need to to spend them in this manner and something like that so again somebody down you know a mile from here in right. in washington dc will be dictating how the topeka school district that's you know exactly operates right. or something like that yeah. right that's exactly right yeah so and on the defense side i guess if you think about overall i guess morale right military morale you know how how does this you started to allude to it a minute ago with you know, there's less money there for new home construction for military families. Um, you know, those are very tangible uh, problems with this budget. How's it affecting yeah. morale overall? It's gonna. It hadn't manifested yet, but it's gonna start. I think as this as as the budgets don't keep up with inflation, even you know, soldiers at the lowest levels are gonna start to realize, hey, we don't have the amount of money we need to train. You know, and so you know, let's say you're in the army and you are supposed to fire an anti-tank missile, but you know, your first sergeant, your company commander says, well. We're only going to fire those every other year because of budget cuts. Or we're not going to drive our tanks to the range. You know, we're just going to walk or something like that. We don't have the money. And there's, I'm already seeing some indications of that. The Army leadership is saying because of the, this upcoming budget that they're going to have to focus training on the lower levels, like nine-person squads and platoons and companies, and not do the big training exercises that they would normally do at the division and, and at the brigade level. And uh, they're, I think they're trying, you know, they're really kind of disguising what's really going on here because, I mean, it's admittedly costly to, to get an entire brigade of 4,000 soldiers together and train. But if you want to be ready for war, that's what you have to do. You have to kind of, if, you know, if you're going to get ready for a football game, you can't just take, you know, the offensive line out. You have to have the whole team out there, you know, and you have to, to practice. And they're not taking the whole team out on the field and practicing. They're, 
They're practicing with little tiny pieces of it. And it's, it's going to be seen in the Air Force. You know, the pilots there are already not getting enough flying hours. And so they're, they're getting maybe one or two abilities to fly per week when they should be flying three times a week. That's going to get worse. If these budgets come to pass, uh, people are going to say, we just can't afford to fly our airplanes. We can't afford to, to train the way we ought to. And, and then our equipment, which we have, you know, we have great equipment in the military, but it's just slowly getting older and older and older. And if we don't, if we don't invest to replace it, because these things take time. You have to take to equip an entire army takes years upon years. You can't just do it, and we're not making the necessary investments right now to refresh all of our equipment. So I'm troubled by this. Um, we'll see what happens later on, but um, you know we've got a lot of threats in this world. It isn't like 10 or 15 years ago when maybe we had some terrorist threats. You know, China, you know, I could go on and on about the, the threat posed by China. I think if one thing has come out of this past year in the terrible COVID pandemic, it's that our, you know, our illusions about China have kind of fallen away. And we really now see yeah. them for what they are. And, and Russia, you know, I could go on about them and Putin and, and how he mobilized all of his army against the Ukraine just to intimidate them. And, one of his proxy states just a day or two ago, you know, diverted a commercial aircraft and took a private citizen off this aircraft, diverted it to Belarus. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, and it just shows that there are these countries like President Xi and, and Putin are not bound by international norms. And the only thing that they respect is power. I mean, diplomacy is good, but you have to have American military power to back it up, and we are whittling away at that American uh, military power right now. Well, and, and what effect does that all have? I, I was going to ask you about uh, just sort of where, how we're positioning military spending relative to how the rest of the world is, yeah. which you, you started to answer there. So I'd like your thoughts on that, but also just the impact on retention and yeah. re recruitment. I, this is something that um, my colleague Jude and I worked on a lot of, a couple of years back with, yeah. um, with your help on these retention issues as a function of education, because we know, we found out through our research that about one third of military members had consider le considered leaving service altogether yeah. because of the state of the school they would have to attend, their child would have to attend at their next assigned duty station. And that was just eye-opening right. to us how much education and your assigned K-12 school impacted military decision-making on the part of families. and so. We've been pushing for quite a few years now to uh, use existing federal dollars that we already spend to provide education savings accounts to military families. Again, it goes back to that is an enumerated power of the federal government, right? right? It's right. the responsibility yep. of the federal government to provide for the national defense. And if we are hemorrhaging families potentially because of the schools that their child would have to yep. attend, yep. they have a responsibility to make sure they have that quality education continuity. So anyways, that was a tangent. No, but, uh, <laughs> no a great questions. You know, and I'll take the one about U.S. defense spending compared to other countries. You know, if you just go with a market exchange rate, you know, like convert your dollars to euros, that type of thing, we spend more than a number of other countries. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, there's this thing called purchasing power parity, which is really important to understand. And so a dollar, when you convert it into the Chinese uh, currency, uh, doesn't get you as much. And so, you know, the Chinese pay their laborers, their workers, a fraction of what uh, the United States does. A private in the Chinese army makes about $100 a month. Hmm. A private in the United States army makes about 
$1,700 a month. And so when you do that costing, you can get a lot more for what China spends for their military. So straight market exchange, China is spending maybe uh, $200 billion compared to our $700. If you factor in purchasing power and parity, now you're into the $500 billion range because they can build a ship, they can do many things for just a fraction of the cost. And so you have to be careful with straight dollar to their currency comparisons. And the United States has huge commitments to allies everywhere in the world. So we're not just trying to protect the South China Sea like China is. We have commitments to NATO, we have commitments to Australia, Japan, yeah. South Korea, Israel, yeah. you know, all kinds of different places that require us to have kind of a global presence that other countries such as Russia don't have. You know, to this question about retention, retention even before we get into money is a problem right now. You know, American youth have a lot of good choices right now. They can go to college, they can get good paying jobs, you know, that the, there's plenty of opportunities now. And so the military is in a real competition uh, for qualified talent. And so if we start to diminish the benefits package even a little bit, uh, that's going to be a problem. The Army failed to meet its recruiting targets in 2018. They came short. They couldn't require, they couldn't recruit enough people and they couldn't recruit enough people last year in the pandemic. And wouldn't you think, I mean, usually unemployment, you know, in recruiting kind of balance each other out. So if it's high unemployment, the military has a better time of it. That didn't work that way last year. And I think they're, they're reaching some kind of ceiling where American youth are saying, hey, um, there are so many other opportunities. I want to go right to college. I want to do this. And so if we tamper with the benefits package, um, that could have some real consequences. You know, and speaking of the school systems, and they all, they all try and do their best. But I remember I was transferred from, I was assigned here to Washington, D.C., and I went out uh, uh, to assignment out in the county United States. I don't even want to pick on the state. But my son at the time uh, was fortunate enough to be in a high school here uh, where he was studying Latin, and he was pretty good at Latin. And when we got to the new high school, uh, you know, I remember uh, my wife coming home and saying, well, the, it's not going to be a very hard choice on foreign languages. It's Spanish. Oh. <laughs> or no foreign language. There is no, like, French or German or Latin. It's oh. Spanish. And I think they were probably fortunate they even had a Spanish teacher because they were, you know, they just didn't have the means. And, you know, and so it was a really a tough time. Yeah. This, um, this education funding, I mean, if we, if all this comes to pass and all these dollars get pushed out to these districts. I mean, what, what do you think some of the consequences might be? Right. So it's a great question. I mean, as I said a moment ago, they're still sitting on a lot of cash yeah. from last year from right. these spending packages. Uh, that money, there's a lot of unspent money that uh, it will be interesting to see in the, the next few months how that gets allocated, uh, how much say the unions have in that allocation. The unions, quite frankly, deserve no say in anything <laughs> after the last, the last year in particular and really being the uh, one of the main reasons, I would say, the main reason for schools remaining closed. Um, but look, I mean, I, I think in any sector, it is very difficult to compete with free. And when you have federal taxpayers being required to just, you know, dump money out of helicopters onto schools across the country, it's, it makes it tough for the, the private, small mom and pop private schools to compete as well. And that's why it's so important in any education spending that we be agnostic about the type of school that a family wants to attend. That family knows best <laughs> what, what their child needs. They know what school's values align with their own values. They know their hopes and dreams and aspirations for their child. And so, of course, this is why school choice is so critical. 
Um, but it also matters for the overall survival of all types of schools in our, in our marketplace of schooling in the U.S. And so when we spend money on education at any level, state, federal, local, we should be spending it directly on the child. Fund the child, not the system, right? Right now we have, if we were going to design American education from scratch tomorrow, I guarantee you we would not design it the way it is currently designed, where we say we are going to, number one, compel you to attend school, right? You, there are compulsory education laws in every state now. Uh, we are going to assign you to that compelled school. Uh, so you have no choice. It's up to the neighborhood that you can afford to live in. 71% uh, of kids today are assigned to the school that they attend. 90% of kids roughly go to public schools across the country. That includes charters. 71% of those are assigned directly. And then, then number three, we're going to publicly fund it through ever-increasing taxpayer dollars that you as a family don't really have much control over. So it's publicly funded. It's compulsory and it's assigned. I mean, this is like an iron triangle of government compulsion in K-12 education, which is why it shouldn't surprise anyone that we haven't seen improvements. I don't think we would design the system like that uh, if we were to design it tomorrow. And this is, look, we, you mentioned um, that we have, the pandemic has led to individuals, families seeing some things differently, right? I think you said it in the context of, of China. The same is true with public education. Families over the past year most of them have literally been in the classroom, right, the virtual classroom with their child. They're seeing what public schools are teaching. They're not always very happy uh, with the content that's being delivered. Uh, and so I think they've seen the need in particular for options for schools to be more nimble. And look, I'll give um, sort of a, um, I don't know, just a shout out to the public system, right? I mean, it, it's not entirely the fault of the district system. This is the way the system's assigned. Um, but we need at the state level, at the local level, for officials to also be willing to remove some regulations from the public sector as well. So we need to free up, make dollars more nimble overall. And so hopefully that's something that we will see moving forward uh, as a result of the, the pandemic. Um, listening to you talk about all of the problems with the defense spending, it just makes me so angry, right? Like this is, this is a good use. It is the appropriate and good and high use of taxpayer funding right. that is imperative for the United States, for any, any nation, right? You've, you've got to support yourself. Um, and, you know, I think about the proposals that are on the table right now for things like student loan forgiveness, something else that makes me incredibly angry. <laughs> Public well, let, policy let me context. Yes. We talked about how eroding the benefits. So why do, yes. what's a good exactly. reason that kids go to the military? That's right. To pay for college, we're, right? We're well, tracking. if you make college like free like oxygen. <laughs> exactly. That's that, exactly that, right. And that's a huge thing. That's exactly right. And this is something, if you think about the GI Bill, it is what type of benefit? It is an earned benefit. Yeah. And the fact that there are Americans who have said, I will, I want to go to college. I'm going to serve my country put my life on the line to do that and then I will have earned that benefit and can put it and the fact that we are saying to those Americans uh, you sacrificed but now we're going to require you to pay off the student loan of somebody else right you did not agree to pay off their loan right. just, I get so mad I know. about it I do too. <laughs> so. let me ask you this and it's not really directly connected to the budget no. but are you seeing the rise of stronger more parental activism in the school system. I see it where I live. I mean, there are signs up on the lawns that say, open yes. Alexandria City <laughs> yeah. Public Schools. We see that. I'm in Fairfax And County. I hear things yeah. like, 
There's a recall campaign in Loudoun County on their school right. board. Right. I've That's never right. heard of such a thing. I mean, right. what are you hearing about these things? Yes, I, that is one of the silver, there are two silver linings, I think, yeah. is that we're seeing increased calls for choice and flexibility. And we're also seeing uh, more, not only more parent involvement, I think parents are more involved than people sometimes give them credit for. Um, but I think that we've seen it taken to another level, right? They're showing up at school boards. I think everybody should show up even more at school board meetings, make your voices heard. I think that is a, a potentially untapped area that conservatives in particular could really engage in. Um, but they are, and this to the point, right, of families seeing what their children are being taught in schools. Uh, you know, we're at a time right now where critical race theory in particular has really made its way out of the academy and into the K-12 system. Families are not happy about that uh, in large measure. Uh, the military is not immune to that either. Your colleague Dakota Woods done excellent work on that lately. And so um, they're, they're engaging in that issue. It's a, it's a tough issue. It's a tough issue for anybody. It's a tough issue for a parent. I think in particular who doesn't uh, understandably you know, want to rock the boat for their child in a school either. Right. Um, but I think it's really important to band together with other families, right? Make your voices heard at those school board meetings. So we know, we know it's possible now. Families are doing it. What should Congress do about all these proposals for education funding? Just say no. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know that's, it's not going to happen. But I, I do think you know, if, if they really want it to be serious about prioritizing spending and making sure that every dollar that they spend and no dollar the federal government has except that which they've taken from individual hardworking Americans. Right. So they should scrutinize how we spend every single penny. They should apply that to education, right? If you look at the history of education, every program at the federal level has a poor track record. And I say every, it's basically every program has not had the return on investment that proponents said it would have. Uh, I will exclude from that analysis the DC voucher program, which is federally funded and has a phenomenal track record of success. But they should scrutinize the outcomes of these programs. Um, there used to be something called the Program Assessment Rating Tool, where Congress did that uh, regularly. They, they need to re-engage with that. But also get back to the core you know, function of what these federal dollars, uh, if we're going to spend them, we're supposed to do. And that, that function is supporting the education of children. And again, we should be agnostic about what that looks like, fund families directly. So with the existing dollars, with Title I, um, with IDEA, which is federal funding for kids with special needs, with the funding we spend on impact aid and military families, give the families the decision-making authority, fund the students individually, and allow those existing dollars to be portable to any public, private school of choice, uh, an ESA, a private tutor, whatever a family wants, but make those dollars more nimble. Yeah, I could not agree more. And, you know, in, in terms of defense, uh, I, you know, I'm hearing voices in Congress that are going to try and push back and maybe get the Defense Department the money they need to continue to prepare this country, you know, for great cow. Nobody wants war, uh, but we have to be prepared if we want to avoid it. And, you know, I, I would never argue that the Defense Department should be immune from scrutiny. I mean, every dollar we give them should be based on a required need, and, and we should expect them to be free from waste and fraud and abuse. But they need more funding if they're going to execute what we're asking them to do. Like I said, we've got a couple hundred billion uh, over <laughs> the Department of yeah. Ed and uh, send your way. All so. right, that sounds great. Well, Lindsay, it looks like we've reached the end I of think, our time. I think so. Yeah, it's so great chatting been with great. you. It's been wonderful, yeah. too. And, and thanks to our super audience for joining us here today. Uh, for more events like this, uh, please check out uh, heritage.org. Uh, and if there's a survey coming to you, 
at the end of this uh, event. We'd be delighted if you'd take that as well. And in the meanwhile, on behalf of uh, uh, the Center for National Defense and the Center for Education Policy, thanks and have a great day.